the idea of life is difficult to argue with, frankly. Um, life is such a such a sort of feel-good word, isn't it? You know, nightlife makes you want to go out and enjoy it, even after my bedtime, as Johnny was um, suggesting. My bedtime is relatively early, but I could be tempted out. The good life is something that you, um, uh, you want to go and enjoy. Get a life, of course, you must. It's absolutely essential. Um, Coca-Cola has understood this, um, uh, this over the years. 1976, that was my era. Coke adds life. Does anyone remember that campaign? Or more recently, 2001, Life Tastes Good, 2006. The Coke Side of Life, 2007. Live on the Coke Side of Life, 2011. Life Begins Here. Coca-Cola knows how to advertise its product and it's put the word life in um, um, more than any other word. The, the other word is, is real, if you want to know, um, in its slogans. You can reflect on that if you like. Um, and John understands how much that word life communicates. If you read all the uh, other Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, you will find that as they record Jesus' teaching, the sort of dominant idea is the kingdom of God, which is a very important idea and clearly was, uh, was important in Jesus' teaching. But John almost ignores that. For the people that he wants to reach, he's spotted something else that Jesus spoke about a lot. That is life or eternal life. John chapter 1 verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. John 5, 26, the fa- just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. John 8, 12, when Jesus spoke to the people, he said, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10, verse 10, I am the gate for the sheep. I have come that they may have light, a life, sorry, and have it to the full. Um, John 10, 27 and 28, I am the good shepherd. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life. John 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. That's only a, a selection of them. 46 times... John mentions Jesus using the word life. Seventeen times Jesus using eternal life. This is a big thing that John wants to communicate to us. Jesus came to bring life. I have come that they have life and have it to the full, he said. But what does Jesus mean by that? Well, the obvious and first uh, thing that we might uh, think about, and it's absolutely true to um, John's presentation of Jesus, is that uh, that life that Jesus comes to bring is here and now living. You want to live, fully live now, says John and Jesus, 
then you, you need to find Jesus. You need to find the essence of what it means to be alive in this world. And as you find and follow Jesus, we enjoy life. Life to the full. There is abundant evidence in this world that, that, that Jesus makes life better. Marriages on, on average are happier in Christian homes. Children perform better at school. There's less Ill, Ill health. One amazing statistic is that um, um, uh, Christians are also wealthier on average despite the fact that they give away very significantly more than uh, those who aren't Christians and don't earn, only earn marginally more than the average person in the country. How does that happen? Christianity gives life. There's so much evidence for that in, uh, in this world. Life now. But, is that all that Jesus is offering? You see, the, uh, the, where the Gospel is heading begins to uh, uh, demonstrate to us that actually the life that Jesus offers is far better than that. John's going to sort of slowly, in these last two chapters of his Gospel, let us see that and let us draw our own conclusions. That's what the last two chapters of John's Gospel are all about. Remember, he has told a story up to now about Jesus dying. Dan uh, uh, pointed that out to us and showed it very clearly last week. By the end of chapter 19, we should be in no doubt Jesus was dead. They crucified him, John 19 verse 18. They crucified him, he says again, John 19 verse 23. Or uh, John 19 verse um, uh, 30 goes on. When he had received that uh, drink that he was offered, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And as if we were in any doubt about whether he actually died or not, um, we find that uh, there's a debate about um, them, d- them um, being taken off the crosses before the Sabbath day. So they go to kill them, but find Jesus is already dead. Je- so they put a spear into Jesus' side. Blood and water flows from Jesus' side. And then, verse 35, John says this, The man who saw it, as he's talking about himself, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. In other words, he's saying, it's the truth. I'm really telling you, it's the truth. It's the truth. He's used the word testimony 14 times in the the Gospel, and this is the 13th time. This is vitally important. It's the last but one bit of testimony that is going to be mentioned. Jesus is dead. What does that do for his promises of life? Well, John chapter 20 then begins to unfold John's response. And the first thing that we need to see 
in verses um, uh, 1 to 10 of John 20 is that there was just a slow dawning of an empirical, solid fact that became clearer and clearer to them. The tomb was empty on the third day. Mary goes, first of all, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, we don't know where they have put him. There's a simple truth that she observes. As she comes to the tomb, the stone's been rolled away, the tomb is empty, and she concludes what any reasonable person would conclude, an obvious conclusion, they've taken Jesus' body away. Some, someone has stolen his body. Now it's very, very important that we just, just think about that for a minute. The fir- first thing, just, just to realise, there is no doubt, historically, um, um, no, no reasonable doubt that that tomb was empty. It was a central witness of the early disciples. And, uh, of course, as it became a central story that motivated them, the enemies of these first Christians could have easily gone to the tomb of Jesus, uh, uh, where Jesus had buried, opened up, show his body, end of the Christians. They would, their faith would have collapsed. And nobody did, because nobody could. That tomb really was empty. And notice uh, 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 as well... John carefully um, um, describes for us how Mary just came to the obvious conclusion that anyone would. We're not dealing with people who were just longing for Jesus to jump up from, uh, to, to, to rise from the dead. And the first little hint that it might have happened, you know, they, they, uh, they run out saying Jesus has risen from the dead. It's the last thing in their mind. And, and Mary, like um, uh, many people after her, without uh, thinking about it too much, he just concludes the grave's been robbed. But of course if the grave had been robbed, and the body of Jesus was somewhere else, then again, as it became such a central dogma for the early Christians that Jesus had risen from the dead, it wouldn't have been that difficult to hunt around and demonstrate the body. And no one did. So, um, uh, John has recorded this first stage, a simple observation, there's an empty tomb. Second uh, stage is seen in uh, verses 3 to 7. We'll focus in these verses on Peter to start with. Um, um, Peter's response is, is, um, what shall we say, impetuous investigation. John carefully describes exactly what happened. John and um, uh, Peter starts out for the tomb. They're both running. John's a better athlete than, uh, uh, than Peter, so he, um, uh, he, he gets to the tomb ahead. More of John in a minute. But Peter is the more impetuous one, so where John stops in caution at the entrance of the tomb, Peter bursts straight into the empty tomb, and we get a careful description of what he sees there. Now, 
Notice Peter is a, a, a good example for us in many ways. You see something weird? An empty tomb? You go and investigate it. That's the, the obvious thing to do. Many people who doubt Christianity say um, uh, Christians are irrational people who've just made a wild leap in the dark. Well, the first Christians, notice, were really rational people. They went and they had a look. They investigated. They carefully examined what was in the tomb. It wasn't quite to the standard of CSI Miami, but not far off. And then there's John. John, I think, is described here. Um, he's, the, he's the disciple whom Jesus loved, who appears here. John is described as probably slightly the better investigator. Remember, he um, got to the tomb first, but he hesitated at the door. But when he does go in and have a look, um, verse 8, finally the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, that's John, also went inside and saw and believed. Seems that as John records this, you see, he's wanting us just to implicitly realise that Mary, who just jumped to a conclusion without thinking about it, and Peter, who, yes, gathered lots of facts, but did it in a rather impetuous way, they were not the first. The first one to believe was the one who thought carefully about what he was seeing. John's then careful to explain that this was far from a full-orbed understanding of the Bible. Verse 9, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. First stage, then, of these extraordinary events that, that chapters 20, 20 and 21 are going to record to us is the simple unfolding of this undeniable historical fact that there was an empty tomb there. The Christians are not the irrational ones, you see, according to the Bible. The Christians are the ones who carefully investigate and who think. No one is asking anyone to become a Christian on the basis of a sort of completely blind, foolish leap of faith. The thoughtless one is Mary, who concludes the wrong thing. Or Peter, who sees the facts and never thinks about them deeply. Do not be seduced into this idea that there is abroad in our society, that Christianity is the opposite of rational, careful thought. It is not. The Bible presents it in a quite different way. So that's the unfolding reality that we see in chapter 20, verses 1 to 9, or 10. But then, more important is verses 11 to 18. 
there we find something moving beyond this simple observation of facts to a deeper understanding of what has happened. But actually what has happened has has been hinted at right back in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. The first day of the week. I don't know whether you remember, but actually John's Gospel has been structured so far around a couple of weeks. Right at the beginning of John's Gospel, in chapter 1, from verse 19, uh, right up to the first miracle, that wedding at Cana that we saw, where Jesus uh, turned the water into wine, um, that first week was was a week of witness moving into the very first sign of who Jesus was. But then there was another very significant week in John's Gospel, from chapter 12, verse 1, right up until Jesus' death, is another week. We were told in chapter 12 that it was six days to the Passover, and Jesus died on the Friday the last working day of the week. There's a big song and dance made in chapter 19 that they've got to get the work done before the Sabbath, the day of rest, the Saturday, the work done of killing Jesus. And so we have a week to begin Jesus' ministry and a week to end Jesus' ministry. It's difficult not, if you're a, someone who's read your Bible, not to be thinking, actually, there's another really important week in the Bible. It's the one right at the beginning. Where God does his creative work in a week and then rests on the seventh, in six days, and then rests on the seventh day. Perhaps, then, there is a real significance to the fact that this event, this empty tomb, occurs on the first day of the next week. Perhaps it's a new day of creation, such as has not happened since God stopped his work of creation right back at the beginning in Genesis 1. There's another little hint in, um, uh, in this story which suggests that John may well want us to be thinking that a, that, a, that a new creative work, a new week of creation has been begun. It's in uh, verse 15, which we'll look at again in just a minute, a slightly different way, but we need to notice in verse 15 that when Mary sees Jesus risen from the dead, she thinks he is the gardener in the garden that she's in around the tomb. What if John has recorded that? Because actually that makes Jesus look very like Adam who was given a garden 
to tend in the first work of creation, the Garden of Eden. But now here is Jesus, risen from the dead, looking very like Adam, mistaken indeed, for a gardener because he looks so much like Adam. What if John is hinting to us there's a new work of creation going on here. There's a new Adam being formed here at this tomb. But the way that Mary is introduced into those uh, thoughts is very, very interesting. She is prompted again and again to ask herself questions. Verse 11, Mary stood outside the tomb crying and as she wept she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. We're we're not to imagine her being the kind of person who uh, every day thought she was talking to angels. You know, that's that's not what's going on here. I think she genuinely mistakes them for just two people who are working in the the catacombs. That's that's, um, uh, what seems to be indicated in the other Gospels. So these angels are not recognised by her as angels, but the important thing is, they ask her a question. Why are you crying? From their point of view, they know what's going on. They know them the happiest event the whole of history since the creation has happened. Jesus has risen from the dead. And so they ask her, why are you crying? And um, uh, this time she, she, she doesn't get it. She simply reiterates what she's already said. They've taken my Lord away. Um, uh, so uh, then John records the next section of the story. Verse 14. Um, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realise it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Effectively the same question. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me, where have you put him? And I will get him. Get him. So, so here is the strategy. Here is what the angels and Jesus are are doing in Mary's life to help her to understand what is going on. They are prompting her to think. Notice again, there is not the tiniest bit of irrationalism here. There is not the tiniest bit of, of blind leaps of faith. They are wanting her to think about what has happened. And um, uh, she hasn't got it yet. But perhaps those questions prepared her for what happened next. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. 
she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She recognises him. Do you remember Jesus saying, right back in John chapter 10, when he described himself as the, uh, the gate and the gatekeeper, the gatekeeper opens the gate, the sheep listen to his voice, he calls to his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. They will run away from him because they do not recognise a stranger's voice. My sheep will know my voice, he says, and hears his voice and she knows him. Whether it's the tone of speech, whether it's a work of God, whether it's the address that makes her look up from her agitated, downward, downcast thoughts into his face. We're not told. But when Jesus speaks, finally, it clicks into place. It's not that his body's been taken away. It's that he's risen to resurrection life. How do people come to faith? Well, every story is unique. But John's intention, you see, is to show us there are certain solid things that need to happen. We need to see and be persuaded that there is ample, overwhelming empirical evidence that the tomb was empty, that people saw Jesus risen from the dead. No really responsible historian doubts that. The historical evidence for um, the resurrection of Jesus is overwhelming. The people who say Jesus didn't rise from the dead are the irrationalists who say people don't rise from the dead so Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That is a circular and irrational argument. John lays it on the line. The evidence is out there. But then something more needs to happen. People need to think. People need to say, well, what what does that mean? And something more still. There needs to be, somehow, as a product of that process, a personal recognition of the voice of Jesus, of the reality of Jesus. Mary finally sees and cries out to him. I I don't know where each of you is on that journey. Most, for most of you, this will be a putting a more solid foundation on your faith. Your faith is based on solid facts. You do not need to switch off your brain. Quite the opposite. 
Christian faith is strengthened and consolidated and confirmed by careful thought. You do need to be someone who beyond all of that though somehow has heard the voice of Jesus that has resonated deep in your heart and that you say, I not only understand, see these facts and understand these truths, but actually I have engaged with it with my heart. That, that is what it means to be a Christian. And for most of us here, this is, we'll just be consolidating that. But there may be people here who are at some stage of a journey or who have misunderstood some things. I, I have a good friend who's been saying for 40 years now, but I remember the first time that he... Uh, uh, one of the first times that he that he said it in in my hearing, um, it really struck me. It just says, you know, if if they find the bones of Jesus, I'm, I'll stop being a Christian that day. It's, it's that simple. It's not a flight of fancy, my faith. It is based on historical reality, and if that historical reality is proven false then I stop being a Christian, full stop. It's just that that historical re- reality has never been proven false in 2,000 years. That's why he and I and millions of others are Christians. And then we need to think, We need to think that historical reality casts a massive light over what Jesus meant when he said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. It means not only that he came for us to enjoy this this life now as we were meant to and enjoy all the good things that, that, that bubble up again and again in Christian lives as a result of following Jesus and knowing Jesus that we've already talked about. It means that not only is life better now, but life continues beyond death. Resurrection life. Bodily life. Tomb emptying life. Garden restoring life. As we, like Jesus, will one day rise from the dead and be a restored humanity back as we were supposed to be when Adam was created. And that is real life. Don't waste your time on Coca-Cola slogans, this is the life that God wanted us to enjoy. Resurrection life that begins now and goes on beyond death. Two responses John hints at to those truths. And we'll look more tomorrow, uh, um, not tomorrow, next week, at uh, how he continues some of these things in John 20. But two responses for now that he encourages Mary to have. The first is, he says to Mary, okay, these wonderful truths are starting to impinge uh, uh, themselves upon your heart. Be patient. 
verse um, uh, 17. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, you see, I'm risen from the dead, but there is still stuff that has got to happen in this world before you can really have me with you all the time. What has got to happen is I've I've now got to ascend to my Father, I've got to be seated at his right hand, ruling over the whole of creation. There's got to be an indeterminate period between uh, uh, um, that runs on beyond that, in which the risen Jesus rules in heaven, and we are here on the earth waiting for that final day, and we can't short-circuit that. We can't hold on to him and say, no, I've got the risen Jesus, I want to keep him here. You can't do that, Mary. You've got to, you've seen me, now I'm going to that, and you have got to be patient, whilst I, again, am invisible. And the second response, be a witness. Don't hold on to me. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. It's fascinating um, uh, there, you see. Notice that he says, my brothers. Notice that he says, I'm going to my God and your God. Um, and my father and your father. In other other words, he's saying, the relationship that I have with God and what has happened to me, as I wrote Risen from the Dead, is, is, is extendable. Because they're my brothers. And my father is your father. And my God is your God. In other words, go and be a witness to this extraordinary truth that they... And you can be part of this whole thing. We are bound up together. That is, that is the gospel. That is the message that uh, we have, that Christians have, until Jesus returns again. What happened to Jesus can happen to us. We, we can be his brothers and sisters. He is our father as much as he's Jesus' father. Our God as much as he's uh, Jesus' God. He can do this. That is massively good news. Go and tell them. Go and tell them what life is really all about. So Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. She told them that he had said these things to her. If you're a Christian here, your faith is based on the most solid realities. Can sustain, in fact, is enriched by solid, careful thinking. And as we wait for Jesus to return, then we have the extraordinary privilege of telling other people about him. About life. Who doesn't want life?